Hey, Leading Learning listener, if you represent a membership organization looking for ways to expand your online course catalog rapidly with high quality content, we have good news. At leadinglearning.com AMA, you can find out how to make online training from the American Management Association available to your learners. Through a partnership between AMA and Tagoras, the parent company of Leading Learning, you can give your learners access to more than 70 e-learning modules covering essential business topics ranging from leading and innovating, to managing projects effectively, to working in hybrid teams. For details on how to grow your catalog with courses from a true global leader in management training, visit leadinglearning.com AMA. If you're a leader or an aspiring leader in the business of lifelong learning, you're in the right place. I'm Salisa Steele. And I'm Jeff Cobb. And this is the Leading Learning Podcast. Hello and welcome to episode 142 of the Leading Learning Podcast. This episode features a great conversation with Lauren Delabella and Dick Thomas, leaders of the Nine Billion Schools Movement and co-authors of a book by the same name. You're going to find out why the number nine billion is so significant and, more importantly, why personalized lifelong learning is such a critical need in today's world. Before diving into the conversation with Lauren and Dick, we want to bring you a message from our sponsor for the third quarter of 2018. And our sponsor this quarter is Next Thought. Next Thought is your partner in learning management system technology, creating engaging experiences, increasing learner potential, participant satisfaction, and member retention. Empowering learning businesses like yours with the perfect combination of art, science, and technology of online learning, Next Thought helps you achieve your education goals. Next Thought goes above and beyond the standard learning management system by offering comprehensive solutions, including a modern, elegant technology platform, an evidence-based learning design methodology, and professional video production services. Contact Kevin.Stewart at nextthought.com or visit www.nextthought.com to learn more. For our resource for this episode, we're going to point you to a downloadable preview of the book, Nine Billion Schools, Why the World Needs Personalized Lifelong Learning for All. The preview, along with this episode of Leading Learning, is going to give you a really solid overview of what Lauren and Dick are up to, and we hope it's going to encourage you to go much deeper. To get the link for the preview, just go to the show notes for this episode at leadinglearning.com slash episode 142. Now, Jeff, I'm definitely intrigued by this concept of 9 billion schools, and I know you get into that in the interview. And then, of course, there's the idea of personalized learning, and that's something you and I have talked a lot about. So what are some of the highlights of this conversation from your perspective? Well, I should say that, uh, you know, first, I was intrigued by the fact that, uh, frankly, the, the 9 billion schools people have put a pretty good marketing push behind this movement and behind the book. And I received a very attention-grabbing package in the mail from their publicist. Uh, Kudos to that publicist. Uh, In fact, I may include a a selfie of myself with my Jeff Cobb University pennant that was part of that package. But, uh, you know, as I I dug a, a little deeper, went below the surface, I was struck by the fact, first of all, that Lauren and Dick's background is actually in architecture. 
So Lauren is the president of SHP, which is a nationally recognized architecture firm focused on learning spaces of all kinds. And Dick is the vice president of architecture for SHP. And I've always been really fascinated with the role of space in learning. In fact, it's something I, I wrote about in Shift Ed. So I was really eager to discuss that. And and as I was reading, I was also struck by the fact that the word dignity came up a lot. And Lauren and Dick talk a lot about the opportunity to learn and grow being a fundamental aspect of human dignity. And I think we both, of course, really agree with that perspective. And, and the discussion with them reminded me a bit uh, also of the focus that Bernard Bull put on humanity uh, in, in talking about learning in your conversation with him. So in, in any event, you know, how we all become lifelong learners, uh, the, the lifelong learners that we need to be in this day and age is just an incredibly important topic. Uh, it's hard to think of one that's more important right now, to be honest. And, and I think this discussion with Lauren and Dick will really get the mental wheels turning for our listeners. Well, let's get those mental wheels turning by rolling the interview with Lauren Delabella and Dick Thomas. Hello out there. I'm Jeff Cobb, and this is the Leading Learning Podcast. And today I am thrilled to be joined by Lauren Delabella and Dick Thomas. Lauren is the president of SHP, a nationally recognized architecture firm focused on learning spaces of all kinds. And Dick is the vice president of architecture for SHP. Neither Lauren nor Dick ever planned to be authors or to start a national movement, but in the past year, they've done both. On the heels of launching 9 Billion Schools, a movement dedicated to making personalized lifelong learning a must-have global priority, they've released their first co-authored book, Nine Billion Schools, Why the World Needs Personalized Lifelong Learning for All. They're joining us for this episode to talk more about the new book and what sparked the idea for Nine Billion Schools. Lauren and Dick, welcome to Leading Learning. Thanks for having us. Great to be here. Well, it was so great to, to find out about uh, what you are doing. I, I got a package in the mail that had your book and some other information in it. And uh, well, it was certainly right in, in my sweet spot of interest. So I was immediately intrigued and immediately wanted to reach out and get you on the show and find out about this whole 9 billion schools movement. So with that in mind, let's, let's start at the beginning. Um, and you're both partners at SHP, which is an, an architecture firm, as I, as I just said. Um, what inspired two architects to, to start this movement about learning? Well, first of all, I just want to clarify that I am actually not an architect, but as the president of the organization, uh, you know, one of my major responsibilities is helping to envision what our future is going to look like. And we work with um, an extensive number of education clients across both the K-12 and higher education um, spectrum. And as we are trying to understand what might be important to them in terms of their future, we felt that we really needed to do more research and more um, just knowledge development as an organization on what does the future of education look like so that we were giving them uh, the best possible information to make decisions with. And as we uh, delved into the idea of what does the future of education look like, we realized that we wanted to bring in a futurist to help us uh, work on this and to help us have uh, you know, to really look further down the road than we thought we could do on our own. And so we did that as an organization, and we drew a number of conclusions from that exercise, which was 
fascinating on multiple levels. And coming out of it, we said, look, the future of education is not about what we're doing today. It's not about the sort of formal learning that we've created in the pre-K-20 space. It's really about how does learning happen over a lifetime and how do we make that learning personalized over a lifetime uh, in a way that can can really affect um, an, an individual's ability to flourish and have an impact on their overall human dignity. And that's how this began. The fact is, is that as, as designers, as architects, we sit in the space of design thinking um, all the time as a way of solving problems and addressing challenges that we find in the, the design world. And design thinking has certainly become sort of a, a popular buzzword and a way of approaching a lot of problem solving. And we just felt that you know, this is something we do every day. We're trained to do it, and we're really the right people to take on this problem. So that's really how we got to our jumping-off point. And so that's definitely design thinking on a, on a very large scale. And there are a number of things you mentioned there that uh, I want to go a little deeper on. But before we do that, tell us about the number nine billion. I think it's important that uh, the listeners understand, you know, why, why that's playing such a, a prominent role here. Nine billion stems from the idea that in the year 2050, there'll be just a hair over nine billion people on this earth. And we looked at that and we talked about this, this whole idea of personalized learning. Discussed that, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could figure out how to, um, how to educate all of those nine billion people? What a worthy goal have in terms of elevating society and elevating culture, if we could apply an education methodology that would have all nine billion of us act as if we were we are our own school and actively pursuing learning and flourishing concepts for the rest of our lives. So that's the that's where the emphasis comes from for nine billion. When we say nine billion, we obviously don't mean nine billion uh, bricks and mortar buildings. It's not in the literal sense of the word. Right, definitely, definitely understood. Uh, we, have, we all have this capacity now, though, uh, uh, you know, because of technology, because of other changes, and, and we'll talk a little bit about technology in, in a minute because I know you have a, a viewpoint on that. But um, I, I'm wondering, I mean, you know, you've both been in business for a while. You've been working with learning spaces for a while. I mean, is there something fundamentally different about the environment we have now, uh, you know, that's just such a critical difference from, say, 50 or, or 100 years ago? I mean, why is it so important right now? Absolutely. I think one of the first things we have to understand is this concept of change and the pace at which change is occurring in our lives, affecting all of us, whether we're babies or senior citizens, is astounding. Um, it's gotten to the point where the pace of change is out literally surpassed our ability to manage it as a human society. In a complex environment like that, infinitely more complex than we were 100 years ago, I would argue, the need for education is absolutely critical. Um, we're being bombarded with information that we don't know how to deal with. We have information so readily available that we hardly ever need to search for it. 
but we're not necessarily prepared to deal with that quantity of information or the complexity that comes with it. Therefore, educating ourselves and staying abreast of those things so that we can discern what the proper path is, what the proper solutions are, what are those things that are going to help us thrive in society and culture is of utmost importance. Otherwise, we're going to get run over by our own success in terms of creating technologies that will perhaps take over. It's not something we're necessarily promoting or too thrilled about. And I'm interested, uh, I was interested when I started reading the book, and, and Lauren, you've already mentioned this in some of your comments, that you couch this uh, largely, at least in the beginning of the book, in, in terms of human dignity, um, that this is, this is an issue around human dignity. And I, I sort of got a hint of that, Dick, in what you were just saying, that you know, we could potentially rob ourselves of dignity over time if, if we're not careful about this. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about how, how human dignity factors into this? Well, I can tell you a little story about the start of my career, and I think this has really brought this whole thing kind of full circle for me. When I was uh, just out of college, I was working in Appalachian communities where people were living in homes that did not have indoor plumbing, um, many times even electricity. And I was working in these communities trying to um, help find ways to get people into warm, safe, and dry housing and really improve the quality of their lives by just giving them the basic conditions that in the United States we would expect people to have. And I realized, you know, very early on at the age of 22 that, you know, the only thing that separated me from the condition that these people were living in was the fact that I had had access to a really high quality education. And I think that, you know, as we look across the problems that we are dealing with in society, um, education is not necessarily the only answer, but it is a big part of the answer. And when we have the ability to educate ourselves um, and to not only gain knowledge, but to understand what to do with that knowledge, it contributes to our own individual dignity and our ability to flourish as human beings. And I've had the really good fortune to be able to travel all over the world and meet people in many circumstances and a wide variety of cultures. And when people have access to a quality of education, they have the ability to do things with with their lives that they often don't if they if they haven't had that access. And so I I personally am a huge believer in it and I think for us it's kind of a passion and a big underlying premise behind the idea of nine billion goals. And, and you talk about some specific approaches uh, in the book, um, and I'm hoping we can kind of, you know, home in on how this gets real for people, um, basically. But uh, you talk, for example, about the, the idea of vitagogy uh, uh, or vitagogy. You can tell me how to pronounce it correctly. And also this idea of um, individual flourishing plans. You just used that word flourishing, so I wanted to bring that up. Can, can you tell us more about those two concepts? Uh, and you can tell me if I'm pronouncing the, the first one right and, and then, uh, and then <laughs> the flourishing plans. Sure. So, you know, as in the, in the education world, we think of pedagogy as the, the um, teaching of children, essentially. And we think of andragogy as the, the learning behind adults or the teaching of adults. So we really kind of coined the phrase 
Vitagogy as a way of looking at learning across a lifetime. It's really about the idea of teaching the whole person across a lifetime. And, you know, as Dick, as Dick mentioned, the pace of change is so phenomenal that the, the idea that, you know, we could go through school and learn everything that we would ever have to know is, is ridiculous. So if we aren't expecting to learn across a lifetime, learn as things change around us, whether that's technology or what we do in our jobs or how we spend our leisure time, um, we're, we're constantly learning from all of those activities and the need to sort of put, put a framework around it, the idea of vitagogy is how that was born. The individual flourishing plan is really something that's about kind of taking ownership of that process and making it more actionable. So we all learn differently. We all receive information and process information differently. So as we understand how we as individuals learn best, can we develop these, this idea of an individual flourishing plan where we think about what's the best way for me to learn? Um, where can I get that learning and how do and how is that going to take place over a lifetime and, and realizing that that's going to be um, a moving target because we can't necessarily anticipate what we're going to need 20 years from now or you know if we change jobs five or six times which you know I think we'll see happening more and more um, you know what what those individual needs are going to be as those as our careers evolve, um, or, you know, as we take on different interests and things like that in the rest of our lives, what are, what are the learning needs going to be? So the individual flourishing plan is really about starting to, you know, write an action plan, write a strategic plan for yourself and figure out um, where are those things going to come from. And once we leave the, uh, I guess, the safety of formal education, how are we going to own it? The rest of our lives. And that's an interesting. Go ahead. Jeff, as part of a super idealized um, perspective on the future, you take that notion of flourishing plan and you extrapolate or send it, send it further forward. We can see what impact that might have on the places that we encounter daily, uh, whether it's a restaurant or some other place of business or a store you begin to see how perhaps you could even start to make choices about the future and where you're going to be and what you're going to do on the basis of that flourishing plan and who can respond best to it. So you might have um, a store that offers you an opportunity to participate in making something that is a form of learning you might not have had at any point in the past, but now because it's there, it gives you a chance to learn something new and to explore different aspects of your life. Without that connection, you'd miss out on that opportunity. And I think flourishing plans have enormous power if we were to unleash them uh, going forward in terms of shaping market forces and shaping the way we experience education throughout all aspects of our lives, not just through the first, oh, 20 or 24 years. I think that era has passed. We need to be thinking about learning constant activity that helps each individual reach their own personal goals and aspirations. And I think, I think what you just uh, said there, Dick, uh, 
gets at what for me is is the heart of this or the I think the core idea that really strikes me and it's about um it's about the context the environment the the space uh, of learning and you know you're obviously coming from the architecture world so you know space is top of mind for you I, I know and but that that tugs at the question of who's who's responsible for this you know who who facilitates it who makes it happen because um, you, you you hope that the individual learner is going to take responsibility for flourishing and having a flourishing plan. But if I if I understand you know what you've presented, there is a role for really all parts of society, um, not just schools, but you know commercial businesses, basically you know any any organization, any entity that's interacting with human beings can better facilitate, better architect learning environments that are going to help people flourish in the way that they need to in our world. Is that, uh, am I overstating anything in saying that? No, I don't think you're overstating that at all. I think that's one of the reasons we wrote the book, frankly, is because this concept of individualized learning, it makes no mistake. We're not saying that, you know, we're going to have 9 billion people, individual people out there all doing their own thing. They will to some degree, but the notion of learning is, is not a, a 100% individualized experience. I think there is always this bucket of information. There's the learner and there's the person between those two or the entity between those two that can facilitate um, the specifics of what that individual wants to learn. So there's, there's always this kind of three-party event, I think, that takes place. What we're suggesting is that in, in an effort to enhance and support um, greater development of human dignity, that we all have a responsibility in advancing this mission of education for all. Um, otherwise, we're, you know, we're falling back into a, sort of a culture and a society that's everyone for themselves, and that's not at all the intent. There is an enormous obligation on everybody's part to understand the value of education and to determine the best methods and processes for delivering that education as we go forward. Difficult uh, in an environment in the world that um, goes through a technological civilization-like change about every three to five years. So quite a challenge. And I'm wondering, you know, in, in the book, um, and I want to call out this chapter to, to folks because uh, I, I found it really fascinating. This is chapter 15, and this is Dick, this is one of your chapters in the book, and I should say a lot, a lot of people contributed to this book. Uh, I think you you two sort of uh, wrote the frame for it, um, but then others contributed chapters, and you contributed chapters to it. And in, in chapter 15, you go through a number of um, basically kind of scenarios of kind of different different spaces, you know, that people could be in. Um, one's kind of, a, you know, a restaurant. You talk about a restaurant as a place of learning. Um, you talk about uh, a place where, you know, uh, people are basically making things um, in, in an environment there. Could, could you maybe highlight one of those scenarios or another favorite scenario of yours of, uh, of people being in a, in a space that, that helps them flourish from a learning standpoint that's, that's different, you know, from our standard formal conception of, of education? This is kind of, I appreciate the question because um, the example I want to use is one that didn't make it to the book. We have fresh content here then, great. Fresh content, there you go. Um, we had a concept called Bon Voyage Cafe, <laughs> which 
was a dining experience that was informed by AR and VR technology. Such that you could go and decide you wanted to eat Polynesian dinner from the 1670s. Uh-huh. And you could immerse yourself in that environment through the application of technology. Mind you, this would require a very sophisticated cook but um, or chef, but nevertheless, you get the idea, which is the learning experience allowed you to transport yourself to an environment that infused you with what was going on at that certain point in time or history and allowed you to experience it in a way that you could never do through any other means of education, but through the application of these current technologies that are kind of shaping the way we look at the world. Um, The interesting thing about that is I just saw an ad for a group who is applying AR technology to the dining experience. So it only illustrates to me just how quickly some of these notions are becoming reality for us Mm. and begin to advance this question or this idea that we can learn any place and that we should be thinking about our own responsibility to create those opportunities for ourselves and for our fellow man, so to speak. That, that's, a, that's a great one. And I definitely encourage listeners to, to check out the other examples that are in the book, uh, obviously to, to get the book and, and read it. Um, you mentioned there are some uses of, of technology, uh, um, augmented reality, virtual reality. And, you know, I get the sense in the book that, um, that you both view technology as kind of a double-edged sword. Um, it can certainly do great things for us, particularly when we're talking about something like personalization. Um, but, but everything isn't about technology. Can, can you talk a little bit more about your perspective on, on technology and how it fits into this, this vision of 9 billion schools that you have? Well, there's no question that technology is influencing every aspect of our lives. And certainly it's a huge influence in learning and it will continue to be and it should be. I think that the the thing that 9 billion schools are struggling with, not just us, but or really everybody is struggling with, is the idea of, um, you know, where to, what happens when we can't separate it from our human existence. And when I say that, the one thing that technology can't be is human. And so as we think about the, the learning that we engage in that is inherently human, um, you know, you think about the first time a child walks barefoot in the grass and has the experience of, of what that feels like. Or the first time you smell a cup of coffee and have the experience of what that feels like and how it how it impacts your senses. You know, those are things that technology probably can't do for us. I don't know. Maybe maybe will at some point. So it's really about you know how do we marry the the really the important things that we need to get from the technology with how. Um, how we as humans are, you know, are able to use our emotion and our empathy and our critical thinking skills and things like that and not lose that because that would really be a shame if all we were doing for all 9 billion of us were sitting in front of computers and interacting with our screens rather than each other. There was an interesting quote this morning by a technologist who they were talking about AI and the advancements and the fears of surrounding AI and things of that nature. And the quote went something like this, is that, you know, this 
person was not afraid of machines becoming more human. He was more afraid of humans becoming more like machines. Mm. And I, I think that sums up the concern or the point of view that although technology is certainly shaping our lives in ways like it's never done before, we can't lose sight of the fact that we're the ones creating it and we need to imbue it with as much of our humanity as we possibly can in order to manage it. Otherwise, we're simply putting ourselves out of a place in life, I think. And so that, that to me, that's one of the other reason why education is so critical. These are complex questions, and in order to deal with them, we're going to need every tool we have at our disposal. One of those is the ability to discern where right and wrong comes from and, and how do we evaluate those complexities of life that are facing us. It definitely does seem like we're, we're in a tug of war of sorts because uh, technology can empower us to such a great extent. Uh, and at the same time, technology is, is potentially a, a threat to us. Um, Lauren, I know you, you tackle the, the issue of automation uh, in, in one of the chapters of the book and you know, talk about the role that uh, potentially community colleges could be playing relative to that. I mean, how do you see, I mean, I guess what, what human beings need to learn, the substance of the learning and how um, they, they need to learn and maybe why they need to learn um, is it, really being impacted uh, by technology. Um, I mean, how, how do we stay ahead of that in, in this uh, 9 billion school, school, schools world? Well, in, I think in the, the chapter that you're referring to, one of the things we, we talked extensively about is the gap that is starting to exist between the workforce and you know, the end of someone's college career or high school career. And as um, corporations and companies are grappling with how to fill that gap, there, you know, there has been the traditional kind of uh, continuing education in organizations where somebody sits in front of a computer and, and takes an online course or a company brings in somebody from the outside to run a course or you send send somebody to, um, to take a class somewhere else. And there are, um, there are companies now that are actually starting to build their own universities and they're creating credentialing systems and badging systems and things like that. Uh, but we're also seeing corporations hooking up with uh, public universities and creating courses that are specific to their corporation through those universities. And I really believe that that is difficult because sometimes the, the institutions are just not flexible enough to adapt to the needs that exist. But we do have infrastructure in this country through the community college system that is very flexible and very adaptable. And that is an opportunity for us to find a way to cover these gaps by creating coursework that is specific to business needs or a specific business or corporation, and they have the ability to be, you know, to be a lot more fleet on their, you know, in terms of putting a course together, uh, getting people in place to teach those courses, to do it online or in person, and I think we're going to really see tremendous growth in that marketplace. 
Definitely, definitely. And it seems like, uh, and this is part of the message in the book, I know, is that the, those traditional institutions of higher learning, K through 12, and even the world that, um, that I tend to deal in more, which is the ongoing continuing education and professional development, uh, you know, they're going to need to evolve. Uh, and they're going to need to evolve pretty rapidly to, to still stay as relevant as possible um, in, in learners' lives in this uh, 9 billion schools world. There's one final question that I, I want to ask you um, that, we, that we ask of everybody who comes on the show. But b- before I do that, um, I'd love for, to hear from each of you, you know, your, your ability now to, to kind of reach out to our listeners. Um, what else should they know about 9 billion schools? Um, you know, why, sh- why should they tune in and, and find out as much as possible about it? I think that the I think that the idea behind nine billion schools, this idea of um, lifelong personalized learning, is just it's in many ways obvious, right? But it's uh, it's not so obvious that it's actually happening. Mm-hmm. And so as we as we figure out, you know, how do we educate ourselves across a lifetime, and how do we respond to the changing needs of generations as you know as this idea expands, it's going to take a lot more of us. I think we have started to develop a really nice um, posse, so to speak, a nice group of advocates for 9 million schools and the ideas behind it. And you're certainly seeing many of those people uh, in the book, but it's going to take many, many more of us. One of the things that I find really encouraging and really exciting is that, you know, there's a, there is a burgeoning trend in K-12 education today for students to take ownership of their education. And I think that's the groundswell that we're going to be seeing uh, that's going to help to drive this idea of education across a lifetime and the necessity for it. These are, we're growing kids today that are going to have that expectation across their lifetime. Now, how do we take this um, and in the book, we say at, at this point, a fairly American principle and begin to think of it worldwide, that that's really the, the dream of 9 billion schools. And that's going to take a lot of us. I, I, I think from my perspective, you know, one of the things that we, what we're looking for, Lauren touched on this, is more voices in the game. One of the things 9 billion schools and the Institute is committed to is is taking deliberate and actionable steps towards some of it. And it's doing so at this point in time through some of its research efforts and partnerships with institutions like Arizona State University where we're exploring some very um, pointed uh, research efforts uh, to try to answer some very specific questions. And not unlike uh, you know the conversation about the fear of failure, I think what 9 million schools needs to do is to employ people who are not afraid to fail, but who are um, impassioned by doing, taking steps, taking actions towards understanding how education can be delivered. Not every option is going to be successful, but that's okay. At least we've learned something by doing that. So the more people we can get involved in um, not only the very specific research efforts, but in some of the higher level thinking, the better off we are. So we're, we're anxious to see people participate in our message as much as possible. That can be through voice or dollars, to be honest with you. 
And there were a, a couple of themes I, I heard in there, uh, or items I heard there that I, I want to stress. Uh, Lauren, you said uh, towards the beginning of your comments that um, it's not so obvious that it's actually happening, which I think is you know, powerful for people to remember. You've both stressed the, the need for more people to be involved, which I think is critical. And then just the fact that expectations are changing. So you know, the change is, is coming, um, you know, whether we're going to adapt to it in the way that uh, we need to. Well, it'll, it'll happen eventually, but it'd be good for it to happen much sooner rather than later. As, as we wrap up here, uh, a question I want to ask each of you uh, that we'd like to ask everybody who comes on to leading learning is, is about your own personal learning. And, you know, you may want to answer this with the, the backdrop of 9 billion schools and, and personalized learning in, in mind. But um, I'm wondering for, for each of you, what's one of the most powerful learning experiences that you've been involved in as an adult since finishing your own formal education. And this could be an experience where you were the learner, or it might be an experience where you helped uh, facilitate or, or lead learning. And I'm sure 9 billion schools is one of them, but since we've just been talking about that, uh, maybe an another one that's uh, been highly impactful for each of you. So I think for me, uh, although I can probably think of 10, but the most recent experience that has, has really had a profound impact on me is that it's been just about 10 years ago since I became the president of SHP and took over the business. And I, um, I came in to take, I had been in the, in the company for 20 years at that point, and I was very well immersed in it. But when I became the president of the company, it was right as we were plunging into recession as an organization. And that was not something that I was equipped to deal with. Um, I had suddenly 10 partners uh, all looking at me trying to figure out, you know, how we were going to get through this. And uh, frankly, that kind of environment doesn't necessarily always bring out the best in people. So the idea that this was maybe the most profound learning experience that I've personally ever had about, about everything that I can imagine, you know, learning that I didn't know what I didn't know, um, how to figure it out where to go to find mentors because my mentor in the organization had passed away and I didn't have him to talk to. Uh, it was, it was really quite an incredible time. And now as I look at the future of the organization and I think about the future leadership of the organization, there are many, many things that I learned about, about patience, about having enough information to make good decisions about how to treat people and how to expect to be treated in return that are things that I would teach to the next generation um, as we go forward and transition the leadership of this business over, over time. So that was a time when I lost a lot of sleep and um, some days didn't even want to come to work, but I learned so much and it has made me a much better leader and a much better person. Sounds like a real crucible of, of learning there. Uh, Dick, how, how about you? So the one that comes to mind is one that, that um, occurred about three years ago. I, I had the good fortune to be invited to sit on a very small board of advisors for a very large company. The focus of that group was to look at um, the nature of innovation it's a very forward-thinking group. 
looked at the nature of innovation and these, these large companies, three primary markets, one of which included um, our profession here as architects. And the application that we were asked to evaluate and to look at and to participate in a multi-day session involved the influence of design thinking on education. And I sat through some 20 to 25 consecutive presentations from people all over the world who exposed me to um, a way of thinking about education that I had traditionally not been exposed to by virtue of all of our, the client relationships uh, I've had over the past three, five years as an architect. And it really opened my eyes and it, it caused me to actually question what I had been doing for the past 35 years and what kind of power I had as an architect to tackle the next 35 years. Um, it was, we use a joking phrase around here, kind of a light bulb experience, um, but it was transformative in my approach to problem solving. Um, and in, in significant part has led to you and I talking today mm. um, and I, the nine billion schools message and idea has such power. Now, as an architect and as someone who is versed in design thinking, which begins with the whole concept of empathy, um, it really helped me understand what kind of power I had in this conversation. Certainly don't know that I'll change the world tomorrow, but I, my training and my profession gives me a position in this dialogue that is different than others, and it needs to be exploited as professionally and responsibly as possible. So that was a turning moment, and I've, I've been an architect for a long time. Um, this one has changed my view on what I do as a professional. Well, those are powerful experiences both of you have had. I, I know, as, as you uh, uh, suggested, Lauren, you've had many others uh, on top of that that have, have brought you uh, to where you are today, and very grateful you are here and that you have started up this movement and are, and are trying to get other people involved, um, trying to make it uh, actually uh, happen, uh, this uh, personalized learning for the, the burgeoning population of the world. For folks who want to find out more about the Nine Billion Schools movement, about the book, about the Institute, uh, where should they go to, to get that information? Uh, all of that information is available at 9billionschools.org, and certainly through the, through the website, they can make contact with either one of us, and the information uh, for pretty much anything they would need is, is right there. The book is also available um, on Amazon, and it can be downloaded in Kindle form as, as well as paperback. Well, fantastic. Well, I will encourage listeners to, to definitely visit the website, get the book. Uh, you're on Twitter. I know you've got a hashtag on Twitter. You're on Facebook. You're on LinkedIn. We'll put all of those in the show notes so that uh, folks can connect with 9 billion schools and, and uh, start participating in this movement. So Lauren and Dick, thanks so much for taking the time to be on Leading Learning. Thank you. Yeah. That wraps up our interview with Lauren Delabella and Dick Thomas. To get show notes for this episode, go to leadinglearning.com slash episode 142. As part of the notes, you're going to find the link we promised to a preview of 9 Billion Schools, Why the World Needs Personalized Lifelong Learning for All. 
While you're there at the show notes, you'll also see various options for subscribing to the podcast. And if you're getting value out of Leading Learning, we would be truly grateful if you would subscribe. We'd also be grateful if you'd take a minute to give us a rating on iTunes. Go to leadinglearning.com slash iTunes. That will put you in the right place. We really appreciate your ratings and reviews. And those reviews and ratings also help others interested in topics like personalized lifelong learning find this podcast. And we'd be truly grateful if you'd take a minute to visit our sponsor for this quarter, Next Thought. Next Thought goes above and beyond the standard learning management system by offering comprehensive solutions, including a modern, elegant technology platform, an evidence-based learning design methodology, and professional video production services. To find out more, visit nextthought.com. Finally, consider telling others about the podcast. You can send out a tweet by going to leadinglearning.com slash share, or if tweeting isn't your thing, pick another social network of your preference and spread the good word. Thanks again, and we'll see you next time on the Leading Learning Podcast. Podcast.